And we're going to begin reading in a moment from chapter 17. Uh, but if you don't have a copy of the Bible with you and you would like to, uh, to look through one, uh, just raise a hand and one will be brought to you. Just keep it up. Uh, it will be seen. We're going to read quite a substantial chunk. So we're going to look at uh, chapter 17 and 18 and, uh, and then begin to uh, unpack some of that. Okay, here we go. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and seven horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast, which you saw, once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five are fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. And the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. After this, I looked. I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. And I heard another voice from heaven say, 
Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I'm not a widow, I'll never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand off and cry, Woe! Woe! O great city! O Babylon! City of power! In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind, um, made of ivory, uh, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and bodies and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine purple, fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They'll throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe, oh great city where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. One in one hour, she's been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her. O heaven, rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. The merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. I'm going to begin by asking a question. And this question is primarily to the guys. Okay? The question is this. I'm going to ask a question for the girls in a minute. The question is this. Who do you fancy? Hopefully not too much awkward science. If you're married, uh, the chances are that the person that you fancy is sat next to you or very close to you. She is... <laughs> She's the apple of your eye. She's beautiful like no other. 
She's the joy of your life. She's your wife. If you're not married, the question's far more interesting, isn't it, in some ways? Um, <laughs> sorry, that's a little bit cheeky. Um, who do you, who do you fancy? You want to make sure if you do fancy someone, you fancy someone worth fancying. Anyway. Oh dear. Would you believe we're looking at the book of Revelation this morning? And in this, in these chapters and the chapters to come, we see, we see a tale of two women. There's a woman, we actually met her earlier on in uh, chapter 12 or 13, chapter 12 I think it was, uh, a woman who's described there and she is a symbol of God's people. Uh, later on we'll have a description of the bride of Christ. There's one of the women of the book of Revelation and in fact you can read all about her through the whole book. You can also read about another woman, um, her rival, if you like, is described here, or titled here, the great prostitute. So I'm going to describe to you two women, and I'll ask you the question again, which one do you fancy? There's the bride of Christ, we'll come to her in a moment. There's the great prostitute, who is, if you like, uh, a woman representing the world. Bride of Christ, the church, the great prostitute, the world. There we have it in a nutshell. Okay, so the great prostitute, let's just uh, describe what she is like. She is intoxicating. She is greedy. She is self-indulgent. She's proud. She's violent. She's bloodthirsty, even. She's promiscuous. She doesn't mind who she spends time with. She will pursue any number of guys all at the same time, very persistently, very powerfully. Her personality is a very powerful one. She is uh, very much the center of the action, as it were. She's chasing after lots of different men. She can at times appear quite religious because she's chasing lots of different gods. She's very interested in money. She's very interested in sex. She's very interested in power. She's very interested in success. And in the Old Testament, there's another description of two women, as it happens, um, which has some similarities in the book of Proverbs. So in Proverbs 9, we read there, in Proverbs 9, verse 13 and onwards, the, wo- the woman folly is loud. She is undisciplined and without knowledge. See, she sits at the door of her house, on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. She's enticing. She is alluring. And that's the problem. Because she's attractive, she's popular, she's wealthy, she's revealing, she's well-dressed. Some would say she's even drop-dead gorgeous. And again, that kind of sums up the problem. She uses people. She doesn't love anybody apart from herself. She gives, she gives luxuries and wealth, but she causes a lot of grief. 
And so she is responsible for the death of the saints. We, we catch a glimpse of that in uh, the very end of chapter 18, in t- uh, chapter 18, verse 24. In her were found the blood of prophets and of the saints. She's been trading in lots of different things. But in chapter 18 and verse 13, we find out that some of the things she's been trading in are bodies and the souls of men. She is absolutely gorgeous and completely ruthless. She's responsible for this bloodshed, but she feels no sense of responsibility. So chapter 18, verse 7, um, in her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I'm not a widow, and I'll never mourn, but around her all this death and chaos. She is, in so many ways, like the cup that she holds. A golden cup. Wow, very impressive. Wealthy, attractive, and desirable. What's inside? Abominable things. Absolute horrors. There we have it. As the book of Revelation goes on, we will see other descriptions of the bride of Christ. She is a very different woman. She is faithful. She is loyal. She is pure. She only has a heart for God. She's hardworking. She rolls her sleeves up in order to help and serve other people. She's righteous. She's kind. She's not at all self-seeking. She is wise and godly. She's full of self-control and humility. Again, in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 9, we see a description of another woman. Again, there are some striking similarities. We, we have it there, uh, right at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She's hewn out its seven pillars. She's prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She's also uh, set her table. She sent out her maids and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come in here. She says to those who lack judgment, come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding, she says. So two women. The problem, however, the bride of Christ in the here and now looks a little bit plain. She looks a little bit ordinary. She's unassuming. She's modest. She's not glamorous. By those who define fun the way that that first woman described fun, she's not much fun. But she does have a joy that that first woman will never know. She has standards. She's pure. She's holy. She doesn't budge on those standards. And therefore, actually, at times she can be uncomfortable to live with. It can be challenging. She is the salt of the earth. She's good. And sometimes when we discover a lack of goodness in ourselves, in effect, she holds up a mirror and we see, ah, oh, actually there are some parts of me that aren't good. She's the bride of Christ. She can be challenging and uncomfortable to live with. So I return to that question. Who do you fancy? Who do you like? Who do you want to spend time with? 
As Christians, we are um, those of us who are saved and added to the church can still feel a little bit of a tug of war taking place in our own hearts. We are committed to the church. We believe in Jesus and we know that one day we will be with him. Uh, the whole church, all of God's people, the bride of Christ, enjoying heavenly feast with him. We know that, but a tug of war is still taking place. This other woman is still around. She's a bit brazen. She gives the odd flirty look. And sometimes for believers, we can try and think, is there some way that it could be okay for me to date both women at the same time? Because I quite like the bride of Christ, but sometimes I feel drawn to this other woman. Some churches in Revelation were like that. They were committed to Jesus, but they'd been giving in to that tug of war. They were getting drawn back to the world. They spent a lot of time in the world, and therefore they'd begun, they'd begun to look the same as the world. Jesus turns up to those churches and he says, almost in effect, I'm not quite sure now, I can tell the difference. There's the great prostitute and there's the bride of Christ. Just remind me again, which one are you? Which one are you committed to? It's, it's getting a bit blurry, I can't tell. And one church in particular, the church in Laodicea, he is about to spit out on that basis. This reflects Satan's tactics. What he can't achieve through outright persecution of the church, oppression, hostility and martyrdom through the power of the beast, he attempts to achieve by seduction, tempting God's people to compromise. And how does he do that? Through the great prostitute, the world. Just getting drawn back into compromise, just getting drawn back into blurring some standards, blurring issues of purity, that can be what's going on. Guys can be drawn into the church and then just think after a little while, she seems a bit plain. She seems a bit ordinary. It's not quite as much fun of a fashion as I thought it might be. Um, Sometimes even microphone stands fall over. Um, sometimes things are just not, you know, they're not all that polished in the life of the church. It's not always that impressive. She's not that well dressed. And I want a bit more excitement. I know I shouldn't, but I kind of do. And there comes the route into compromise for God's people. That's the first question. The second question is this. And maybe this... If, 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 if girls, you didn't quite kind of fully, uh, go with the first question, who do you fancy of these two women? Uh, that's understandable. Um, the second question is this, where would you like to live? Um, because we also see here in these chapters and in the book of Revelation and indeed through the whole Bible, a tale of two cities. There are two places. There are two communities, if you like. Built on very foundation, very different foundations, two options, two lifestyles, if you like, two places where we can live. One of them 
is called Babylon. I'm going to describe, describe her in a moment. And another is Jerusalem. And we see the new Jerusalem uh, in the chapters to come, in chapter 21. Um, first of all, Babylon. Let's describe Babylon. Again, you'll spot some similarities here. Uh, Babylon is rich. Babylon is successful. This city promises easy access to precious stones, jewelries, um, uh, luxuries and glories. She's, again, this is a very fashionable city. Very, everyone there is well-dressed. There's a lot of parties. Every resource, every service, every commodity that you would like that could provide satisfaction can be found in Babylon. This is a city that, to all intents and purposes, looks incredibly secure. This city has very strong defenses. This city feels very safe. This city is the center of attention, the very center of culture. It's a desirable address. Good postcode, this one. Wealthy, potentially a place of endless pampering and provision. And again, we, we can get a description of this place Genesis, uh, of, of this place Babylon right back in the book of Genesis in chapter 11. We see a, a community there develop and become established and their whole reason for being, as it were, was to make a name for themselves, it says. They were not seeking the glory of God. They were not seeking to live God's way. And so in Genesis 11, uh, chapter, uh, verse 4 rather, this community of people all gathered together. They all organized themselves, say to themselves, come. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and be scattered uh, and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And so this defines the ethos of that city. Let's make a name for ourselves. She's got a name for herself. This place, again, is, is, is desirable. It seems very safe and wealthy. There's no need of God in this, in this town. Trouble is... Babylon is doomed. This city is doomed. There are no cracks evident. There's no subsidence. Not really got a history of flooding or being invaded. City walls are impregnable. She feels very safe. But she is going down. And she is going down suddenly. We hear the angel declare kind of certain, with certainty, with a mighty voice, shouting out in chapter 18, verse 2, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Even she's become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. This is not a great place to live, actually. Others who've benefited from this city invariably kind of stand at a distance and they say kind of, Whoa. Or maybe another way of saying the same thing is, alas, we put all our hope, we'd gain so much from living there. And now it's all gone. It's all gone in one hour. See that chapter 18, verse 10, in one hour your doom has come. In verse 17, in one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. In verse uh, 19, in one hour she has been brought to ruin, disaster, judgment. It's over. 
there's Babylon for you. The other city is Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, we're going to read about her in chapter 21. She is destined for great things. She's a great investment for the future. The plans that have taken shape for Jerusalem are out of this world. They are magnificent. She will, in fact, host the biggest party that the universe has ever known. In this place, there's never going to be a dark night. Everyone in Jerusalem is friends and gets on well. There's no need in the new Jerusalem to lock your door, check your alarm, ring the police. No need whatsoever. That's what, that's her destiny. A place of complete peace. Peaceful, but not boring. She's also got a carnival atmosphere, or at least she will have. She is also ruled by the kindest, most honorable and powerful protector. Eternally, she is a very good investment. She is a very good place to put down your roots. The trouble is, here and now, she's poor. She doesn't look very successful. This city, rather, is not fashionable. There's not as many luxuries available. Life can be hard in Jerusalem. So, it's not exactly feeling a very secure place now. Some of the city walls are damaged and need repairing. And at the moment in Jerusalem, you never know who's going to walk through the door next. So, I arrive at the question again, where would you like to live? Where have you set your heart? Which of those two locations seems most appealing? Again, we can, as God's people, move into God's kingdom. That's where our address is. That's where we know where we belong. It affects what we do. There are certain times like today when we get together with other people who have also moved into that kingdom. Sometimes after a while, that move can then be accompanied by feeling disappointment. Living in Jerusalem, but secretly visiting Babylon as often as we get the opportunity. Or living in Jerusalem, but straining our eyes to the horizon, trying to imagine what life would be like if only we could move back to Babylon, or if only we could come up with some way where we get the benefits of living in both locations. Wouldn't that be convenient? Wouldn't that be helpful? Wouldn't it be great if we could get a sense of security and satisfaction in life, both in Jerusalem, so we've kind of hedged our bets a bit, we, we, we're looking forward to that into the future, but right now we're kind of also wanting to get the benefits and the security and the satisfaction and the pleasure and the resources and the services and the sense of identity and security that come from living in Babylon or living in the world. So a tale of two cities or a tale of two women and an important choice to make. Revelation, as a book, uses this very dramatic language that we've seen before in order to make some issues really, really stark, really, really clear. And the issue that these chapters in particular are wanting to draw our attention to again is this, compromise. Compromise. In the church, 
making decisions that reflect that kind of hedging of bets, compromise. Issues of purity getting downgraded. I know we shouldn't do this, but I'm drawn to it all the same. Issues of purity, maybe to do with sex. The great prostitute is very happy to sleep with anyone. The bride of Christ is pure. She's only for one man, and that's Jesus. Impurity in physical appetites. Drinking too much, eating too much, very focused on money. Hence Liam's word earlier on. This is my God. This is where I'm getting my satisfaction. This is where I'm putting my hope. What God is going to give me this, I ask you. It's that stark, but sometimes we don't see it that starkly. So, very focused on money, very focused on luxuries. Preoccupied with them, in fact. Tempted to go into debt in order to fund that holiday to Tahiti. Because that's what the world offers. Go travel. Go see everything that's around. And go and get yourself a whole load of life experience. Yeah, You can travel, that's great. But is that what you're living for? Are you living to see the world? Are you living to have the five-star hotel and the most amazing, luxurious holidays? Oh yeah, live for the holidays, me. Is that what we're living for? <laughs> Revelation is driving home this point. Purity matters. And so this stark call... Another angel, another voice from heaven. Well, another voice from heaven could be an angel, could be God's from heaven says in verse four, come out of her, my people. God is speaking to his bride. God is speaking to Jerusalem. God is speaking to the church. God is speaking to people who are in his kingdom. And he was, he's saying to us, come out, come out of Babylon. Come out from the company of that other woman. It's an urgent plea. Get out. Don't hang about. Judgment is coming on all that is opposed to God in this world. So don't mess about with things that are opposed to God in this world. Babylon is destroying our purity, ruining our future, and damaging our relationship with God. Now, what can be the signs of compromise? The signs that maybe in a church things aren't totally tickety-boo on the whole subject of pure living. It's slightly easier to say this because of the time that we've already had this morning. Sometimes dull corporate worship can, doesn't always, but can indicate a people are giving their affection Somewhere else. It's easy to say that because I feel we just had a really wonderful and edifying time of worshipping God and enjoying Him and just being reminded of His faithfulness and His goodness and His love. And so, ah, oh, this is just vibrant and joyful. Wonderful. Sometimes I think, I wonder what's really happening in the heart. 
when God's people get together and it's just a bit dull. It's a bit muted. Now, there can be other reasons for it. When circumstances of life are grueling and so on. But sometimes it can just be an indication, spiritually speaking, the temperature's dropped a little bit. Why is that? Possibly because we're just looking more to give and receive affection elsewhere. So zeal kind of takes a bit of a nosedive. There, there can be a lack of a radical edge. Maybe just like a lack of conversation amongst us. How are you doing with God? And like infusing about maybe discoveries in the word of God. That can all be there in the mix. It was certainly there in the mix for church in Sardis. In chapter 3 and verse 1, they get this bold and dark verdict where Jesus says to them I know your deeds you have a reputation of being alive but you are dead that's what happens if purity takes a nosedive zeal for God and relationship with God will take a nosedive if that takes a nosedive what we'll end up whether we like it or not trying to do is create the impression we've got a reputation for godliness we've got a reputation for worship we've got a reputation for enjoying the word of God we've got a reputation for being filled with the spirit we've got a reputation for those things but on the inside we've got hollowed out because purity just took a nosedive zeal took a nosedive faith in God took a nosedive, and we got compromised. We started to maybe start living with some blurred lines, morally speaking, a confused lifestyle. So this loud voice in heaven says, come out of her, my people. Now, what does that actually mean, come out? Because right here and now, Obviously, we don't physically live in a place called Jerusalem, and we don't physically live in a place called Babylon. We, we live in a city. We live in Sheffield, and uh, we live with the world all around us. So in what sense are we supposed to come out of the world? In what sense are we supposed to come out of Babylon when actually we work in Babylon? We, we in, in some senses, geographically, we, we live in Babylon, um, and a lot of our friends and family are in Babylon too. In what sense do we come out? It's important that we see it. Uh, we see two things. Coming out of Babylon means two things. Firstly, I guess as we've already seen, it means not conforming. It means I'm not going to conform to the pattern of this world. I'm not going to just do what is normally done, even though I live here. And so... With that in mind, and with purity in mind, we can take hold of some scriptures that help us, like Titus chapter 2 and uh, verse 11 onwards from there. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We're a people who are called not to conform. The world rarely says no about very much, but we are called to say no, sometimes quite frequently. No to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, yes to living self-controlled, 
and upright and godly lives in this present age. How do we do that? By fixing our eyes in the right direction. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. What has the grace of God achieved for us? The grace of God meant that Jesus came. The grace of God meant that Jesus took on the form of a servant. The grace of God meant that he humbled himself. The grace of God meant that the Son of God willingly gave up his life. He paid the full price for my sin. He took upon himself the complete punishment for my Babylonian ways, my Babylonian attitudes, my Babylonian decisions, the Babylonian things I've done with my eyes, the Babylonian things I've done with my hands, the Babylonian things I've done with my heart. Jesus came to take it all. Fallen, fallen, doomed, woe, bang. Actually, Jesus took that upon himself. And when we see then the grace of God, when we see what it cost Jesus in order to achieve our salvation, that enables us to say no to some things. It also helps us to say no to some things when we see where Jesus is leading us to and what our destiny is. When our eyes are fixed on our destination, this new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, this awesome heavenly party that we get kind of a flavor of now. By fixing our eyes there, this blessed hope that we have actually it helps us to purify ourselves. It helps us to be single-minded. It helps us to say no to distractions and things that get in the way and clutter life. It's, it helps us to say no to compromise and yes to God. So coming out of Babylon, yes, it means not conforming. But it also means not escaping. John 17, Jesus' words there, verse 14 onwards. Jesus praying, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And so the temptation for Christians, if they really hold on to this, yes, we mustn't, we're not conforming. Oh no, we're not saying Yes to ungodliness, we're saying no to ungodliness. And therefore, what we're going to do is have, as far as we can, nothing to do with the world. It's an unfortunate necessity that some of us need to work. It's an unfortunate necessity that we live with and rub shoulders with people who don't know Jesus. And so what we're going to do is ignore them and form the holiest of cliquiest huddles. And we will try and comfort and encourage each other. It's a dark world out there, everybody. So let's huddle. We've got this little candle. And uh, we've got to make sure that no one blows it out. And we're, we live a worried life. We live fearfully. We're intimidated. And... We're still missing the point if that's what we are, if that's our lifestyle. Someone who got the point in the Old Testament was a guy called Daniel. He lived in Babylon. Jerusalem had actually been totally ransacked. 
Daniel and others amongst the Jewish population in exile. They got no choice. That's where they are. What did Daniel do? Daniel, as it happens, was quite a bright guy. He got educated with the Babylonian education system. That led to getting a job, working for the Babylonian government. And actually wielding quite a lot of influence within that. He's very involved, in a sense, in Babylonian life. But what we see from the example of Daniel is he was utterly uncompromising. He wasn't going to eat the food that was thrust upon him because that was an issue of idolatry in that culture. He wasn't going to compromise. He said no to ungodliness and worldly passions. He said no to some of the ways in which the Babylonians did things. And he said yes to God. He left Jerusalem. Jerusalem deserted, decrepit. But it was Jerusalem that was in his heart. He was still living for Jerusalem, even though he lived in Babylon. And that's an example of pure living in the world. I think that's helpful for students to focus on, people who are maybe in a, in a, uh, looking to education and looking to future job prospects and all the rest of it, looking to what has God called me to in the future. Um, not everyone is called to lead churches. You know, not everyone is called to lead a core group. Not everyone's called to lead worship or whatever. But we are all called to live in the world and be a godly witness within it. To live a pure life that provokes. Possibly even rising to some positions of influence and authority in the world. But we are seeing the issues clearly and we will not allow our faith to be compromised by, oh, if I do that, I'm less likely to get acknowledged. If I, if I make a big point out of this, that promotion or the, the hopes that I've had in that are a goner. So that's what it means. We want to not conform and not escape. We want to fix our eyes on where we belong and where we are headed and Start to see some issues starkly again. I started by answering those questions. Who do you fancy? Or where do you want to live? Perhaps for us, perhaps for some of us, we need to hear this very stark and urgent plea. Come out of her. Come back to where you belong. Stop compromising your faith. Stop living impurely. Stop allowing yourselves to be attracted by another woman. Fix your eyes on the woman that God has given you. Fix your eyes on this glorious city that you're called to be a part of. This message doesn't magically change our address. It doesn't magically mean I live somewhere different, literally. We're about to go back to where we live and where we work and where we kind of do community, if you like. But let's be determined today 
to go back in faith with a renewed attitude. Compromise kills. Purity matters. Let's pray.